Hello and welcome to the Self-Improvement Book Club with Rachel. Today I am joined by special guest John Collins who's going to review the book The Psychology of Money. Hello John, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. It's my first podcast so I can't I'm a little nervous. Well, you're going to do great. I believe in you. So First, let's introduce you to everyone. Tell me about yourself and why you connected to this particular book. Yeah, I'm, uh, I've been working now for about 22 years and I've been in professional sales and uh, done some like side projects as well. But I think this book really connected with me. Um, kind of, I had a, I always thought I had a unique upbringing in that I uh, simultaneously felt pretty wealthy at times with some of the friends and family that from where the city I grew up in, and then also living out in the suburbs and also uh, kind of felt very poor just compared to some others. So kind of having that dynamic um, and way, way to grow up in terms of feeling both rich and poor at the exact same time with no difference in my money uh, really made me connect and it has made me think for years about the psychology of money, I guess. Great. So that upbringing really made you think about this and you wanted to read more about it. What in general do you like to read? Uh, I'm kind of a nerd for nonfiction books for sure and uh, been reading a little bit more on the psychology side of things and I've read business books for years and years. So I'm trying to broaden my horizons a little bit, and I've seen this book recommended in several of the best books to read, so it uh, combined two of my recent uh, reading styles, so I, I had to pick it up, and it was a great read. Great. So you explained in great detail why you like the book. Why would someone else pick up this book? I think uh, money is such a kind of role that uh, is in our society and I think it'd be great uh, for people that are trying to kind of reevaluate how they think about uh, their resources in terms of in financial terms, uh, whether or not they're trying to make more money or if they've made a lot of money and they're still not happy or, you know, they're just trying to reevaluate how they think about um, their, their relationship with, uh, with finances. I think it's a great read. Great. And I know the book, we're going to talk about the details of it and some of the main points. I like to start by asking about what the book said about the history of money because I, I also did pick up this book and read it because I knew that we were going to be talking about it and I didn't want to be totally in the dark. So what was your what did you get from what they told us in the book about the history of money? Yeah, that was really fascinating just how new money is uh, for humans, beings and as a whole. And, uh, you know, we've had, you know, kind of organized society for 40,000 years, but they talk about, uh, you know, the modern version of money from credit cards to mortgages and car payments has only really been around since after World War II. It's a blink of an eye in human history. So the, the way we manage our resources in our minds really has changed quite a bit. Um, and the, the, the just, you know, millions really of, of tools out there to either manage your money, save your money. And uh, then there's also obviously plenty of people trying to help you along the way, good or bad. Uh, so, but the decision-making process uh, can really be overwhelming and just we're at their infancy of managing money and uh, as human beings. So that uh, I can see how it is a challenge for a lot of people out there. Yes. And I, I just want to add some great statistics that I 
picked up from the book, which you mentioned. So the credit card has been around, and this is shocking, since just the 1950s, early 1950s. So we didn't have that borrowed money concept before then. No. um, In that way. And 401ks started to exist in 1978, which... It wasn't that long ago. It wasn't really that long ago. (laughs) No. So the concept of retirement is only two decades old. Can you talk a little bit more about the concept of retirement? Yeah, the the author really goes into a little bit of detail about how, you know, retirement as a, not not even just as a financial process, but as a, as something that uh, adults are planning for and then living through uh, is really the baby boomers are the first ones to really uh, take that on. So the thinking about you know being a saver for decades and decades and then having to flip to be a spender, uh, I know it can be a, a challenge. Um, but just the the idea that you don't you, I mean most of human history you've worked until you died, <laughs> and what what does that twenty year span or however thirty years forty year span of not working equate into your life? How do you make it a happy? I know there's a lot of baby boomers that struggle with um, their, their happiness after they uh, stop working. I read another book, Ikigai, I think I say that right, uh, about um, the the fulfillment that you lose when you stop working. So, but it is, it was really fascinating to, to think about that, you know, our, our lives have extended quite a bit over the last hundred years, but how that um, changes with uh, our financial decision-making from when we're born and until we die. And, and that last bit of is really new for society. Yes. Yeah, so essentially we're in our infancy with all of this because again, it has been a blink of human history that we've had to deal with things like credit cards, 401ks, retirement, things like that. So I'd like to move to a different subject uh, about luck and risk with money. Can you talk a little bit about luck and risk? Yeah, the author really talks about how luck and risk are the, the different sides of the same coin. And I think I've seen a lot of that in being in sales, that you could have the right product, the right organization, the, the right team of people that you work with and, and have a lot of high financial rewards for that. Um, but, uh, you know, you could have a, a, a financial decision that is 80% likely to be successful and it could be unsuccessful due to luck. And that's that 20% of it not working out and having to kind of manage yourself through that decision of, of quote unquote failure, but it was the right decision at the right time. You had, you know, you had the, the, the risk evaluation on your side, but it could still turn out bad. So really talking through the, the, the amount of luck and risk, you, you need to take on risk to, you know, gain wealth and, and everyone we heard that no risk, no reward type of thing but there's a plenty of luck and, and the author really hones in on, you can't measure luck. It's impossible to measure the amount of luck that is involved in either successes or failures. So we, we talk a lot about the risk, but we don't really talk about the luck of timing. Um, kind of just being at the right place at the right time as an example. Yes. And I think I read in the book, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that often when things go right for us financially, we say it's because of our hard work. It's because we did it. You know, it's not because of luck. We take on that when things go wrong, we might go the opposite way. Like we did something wrong. The author really talks a lot about ego and and managing the ego. And um, that's kind of the, the risk side or the luck side of success or failure for that matter. And you, we, in history has a great way of 
um, looking at survivor bias. You know, we study the successes in life, the, the someone that started a, a you know, mortgaged their house and ended up building a giant company. We don't talk about the people that failed along the way that mortgaged their house and ended up ruining themselves. So we, we definitely have a survivor bias in everything that we study in, in history. Um, and that goes for financial management as well. And the, the, the managing of the ego in terms of when there is some financial success in life, um, because if, if that, and the author talks about this, if that gets out of hand, you're going to, you can start chasing bigger and bigger risks and, uh, become unlucky and lose everything. So, uh, really talks about good financial management is good ego management as well. Interesting. So that brings me to my next point, which is what role does envy and greed play in the psychology of money? We'll, we'll talk about managing the ego when it comes to, uh, you know, the keeping up the Joneses in terms of financial uh, thought processes. And, and you would even, met, I mean, how many different um, dis, financial vehicles did you rattle off when we were talking about what's, you know, just newly created 401ks and credit cards and mortgages and car payments? Uh, just talk about the amount of decisions that need to be made and um, managing the, the envy of, you know, keeping up with people around you uh, and managing that ego and make, making sure that that stays in check. The, the author, the one line that really stood out to me was uh, um, wealth equals income minus ego. And uh, you could be making a million dollars a year and be dead broke. And actually the book starts out with a, a janitor that was worth like $13 million when he died and gave it all away and nobody knew that he was worth anything. And uh, the, the guy just kept saving and saving and working and saving and uh, didn't have an ego about his money, didn't show it off, wasn't flashy about it, nobody knew about it. And uh, you know, really how private wealth is, it's wealth is kind of the unseen part of things, which is, which is keeping the ego in check. And uh, because you can spend plenty of money on plenty of flashy things that are good to the ego, but not good to the wealth generation of you and your family. Right. So essentially, if my neighbor gets a Tesla, and I'm not really a car person, but I kind of feel like I have to keep up with my neighbor, <laughs> I shouldn't go out and get a Tesla if it doesn't serve me. And it's not what's important to me. I listen to your podcast, and you really talk a lot about values, right? So it's aligning those values um, with with what your desired goals are. And, uh, you know, when, when people don't have a whole lot of economic choices in life, it's really easy to keep your ego in check, right? Um, but the, as, as you kind of or have more and more success through your life, definitely have to um, manage. It's something new to manage, right, in terms of the, the ego of keeping up with the Joneses and, and just keeping up with society. And there, the author talks about, you, you know, there's only one richest person in the world ever. And, uh, heck, even uh, old... Elon Musk lately has had some ego problems with, so uh, it's 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 definitely if you want to be wealthy, keep that ego in check and uh, make it core to your values. Great, um, because I'm sure envy and greed make you reckless with your money, right? <laughs> um, how can you be wrong financially, make make wrong decisions, and still? make a fortune. So how can you be wrong with financial decisions and still make a fortune? Yep. The, there are a couple ways that the author talks a lot about um, extending the, the life of your savings in, in terms of um, the, the, one of the best things you can do is 
um, save for longer. So, and they talk a, a little bit about the barbell effect in terms of, um, you know, the, I think it's the Pareto effect of 80% of your, you know, output comes from 20% of your work. And they talk a lot about um, that both positively and negatively. So, a lot of a few decisions will make you a lot of money in life. Um, I know I got lucky and kind of found a job right before the Great Recession that uh, really helped out. That was that was dumb luck that I got that job at that time. Um, but at the same time, you could lose eighty percent of your wealth by a couple of dumb decisions as well. So it really talks about bal- um, balancing out your decision making process in terms of um, creating income um, and then saving. For long periods of time, and uh, and then making sure you don't burn down the house in terms of some big dumb financial decisions as well. Yeah, I think I read in the book that you can be wrong about half the time, which is wow, fifty percent of the time you can be wrong and still make a decent amount of money. Is is that? Yeah. How do you explain that? <laughs> it, uh, even some of the, you know, the best financial managers in the world that get paid millions and millions of dollars a year. Um, very few of them actually outperform, uh, you know, index funds and, and just the market as a whole. Uh, so those, uh, those folks that are paid, you know, top dollar to, to manage money, they're, they're wrong plenty, plenty of times. And uh, they will have very, uh, they, the author cites Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger quite a bit uh, and, and talks about how, I, th- I think uh, specifically, well, both those two guys together at uh, Berkshire, um, I think most all their wealth came from like 15 different investments, uh, Apple, Coca-Cola, or a couple of them, and uh, just sticking with them for long periods of time, but very few of those decisions. And then also to be kind to yourself when you do make bad decisions. And when you do make a bad decision, um, don't keep chasing down, don't spiral on that bad decision either. Um, just stop and pull out of it so that you can, you know, make other decisions and, you know, kind of keep playing the game for longer. So really talking about the ability to, you know, make, be okay with bad decisions and just hopefully that they're small bad decisions. Well, that goes back to the ego, right? Like if you get stuck in that bad decision, I, you know, I'm going to keep making it right. It's instead knowing when to cut your losses essentially, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no, you can't go back in time, make decision uh, differences. So if if you made a bad decision financially, um, you know, just, just move on and uh, make better, learn from it. And that's the, uh, the investment is the the learning process. And you, you talk a lot about that on your podcast. Yes, we should all be compassionate to ourselves, but yet learn from our decision-making that weren't great traits so that we can grow and improve. So on that note, what can help you make better financial decisions? Really, um, the, the author talks a lot about um, making your your values and what your – every decision has a financial – you know, um, things that work out well for it or bad. Uh, and if somebody's chasing a partnership at a law firm, they're going to have a cost associated with the family time and uh, really talks about aligning your core values and that really there's no right financial decision. Um, what's right for me could be you know not right for you and really aligning what your values and goals are with your financial decision making and that every decision comes with a cost. So uh, the, the author talks about that he personally has his house paid off in cash. And he says, I know that, you know, a million people could yell at me and say, hey, why don't you just take a loan? You know, there were, 
at the time, there were plenty of low-cost loans out there, and you could invest that money and make more money. Uh, but really talking about um, being able to sleep at night and aligning your value sets with uh, your uh, financial decision-making and uh, keeping those things as, as tight as possible uh, when you are making those decisions. So essentially, if something like family time was more important to you, you might want to get a job that's more flexible, that allows you to be with your family. So you wouldn't be that partner at a law form, firm right. that you might make your wealth in, a, in another way. Well, you're making wealth of your family time, right? Uh, and yeah, you have a lot of uh, options in life. And uh, I know uh, me and my brother once joked that like we used to have easy decision making process when taking jobs because you just took the job that was paying the most at the time that they were offering to you. And as you move along in your career, that uh, that changes and uh, it creates a little stress too, right? Of like, all right, I got all these uh, great options. Tim Ferriss talks about that on his podcast. I think yours is better, but uh, than Tim's. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, but uh, that when you have you know seven good decisions or kind of high high quality options in front of you, that can be almost be more stressful than, hey, I got a job or no job. So, Right. Like salary is not always the most important. It could be culture. It could be, you know, aligning your purpose with what you're doing in your job that, that creates your, your true happiness. Correct? Absolutely. That's, that's, the, that's what really the author talks about is aligning those values with your decision-making processes. And not just when like money decisions about taking a loan out or investing in a stock, but uh, it talks a lot about um, how you spend your time and from a career perspective as well. Yeah, and I just want to mention a couple things in the book that I found interesting, and maybe you can elaborate on them. Um, the The two brothers that have this high correlation. So if you you and your brother, you have a brother, correct? Yeah, I do. Okay. So if you kind of correlated how much money you make, they'd be very aligned with how much income you both generate. Uh, more so than than how how tall you would be even. And they said this is because you and your brother would tend to have the same access to similar opportunities, like good schools that your mom would pay for or not pay for. You know, whatever each situation was is why they're so aligned. Yeah, no, that was a fascinating stat to me was that, you know, your your upbringing and kind of financial values of um, brothers were more correlated than their height and their DNA, right? So the, the upbringing and, and it goes kind of somewhat back into the luck and risk side of things as well, um, that those siblings were more likely to take this, you know, similar risks, um, probably have similar luck in terms of, you know, like you said, the schools that they were um, brought up in. And uh, just just fascinating that uh, siblings, or specifically brothers, because we all know women would make twenty percent less. So yeah, they didn't say anything about brothers and sisters, which you know piqued my interest. Yeah, well, as a guy that grew up with a <laughs> it's a single family mom house, I I, I appreciate the twenty percent gap that uh, I grew up with, um, or didn't appreciate it, I should say. Um, but yeah, that was a fascinating stat that uh, brothers had higher financial income correlations than they did on height. Yes. Another one I just thought was interesting. It cited that low-income households spend an average of $400 a year on lottery tickets, but yet 40% of households struggle to come up with $400 in any kind of emergency. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that, that really talks a lot about the 
why we spend our money the way we do, right? And if 40% of the population can't come up with $400, you know, good chunk of that, probably 75% of those folks are spending $400 on, on lottery tickets. Um, but the, the, the opportunity that lottery tickets do give people is hope and the excitement for, you know, an, an hour or a few minutes at the very least um, that they could kind of jump um, in wealth levels from where they're at and probably, you know, often feel probably kind of stuck at these um, lower income levels and being able to jump up to then give their kids the opportunity to um, do things that they only see on kind of social media and, and on TV. So, you know, who am I to judge the the happiness that somebody gets out of $400? You might think, and I, I've worked in, a, you know, I worked at a bar when I was in college and I saw some people that, I mean, they bought lottery tickets every day and it blew my mind it really did um that you know these folks that you know weren't didn't have a, a huge income were spending all this money online and i personally never really rarely ever buy lottery tickets and i know if i've heard it called the is it the, the low income tax of, is is lottery tickets but you know hey if, if it gives them that excitement it goes back to that personal decision making um about how we spend our resources yeah, and I understand if it gives hope um, and that excitement of, yes, I could jump that ladder to that, that really wealthy income level. So great summary of the book. If you're interested in the psychology of money, I definitely suggest you pick it up. And what is next on your reading list? I'm always curious about what you're reading next. Yeah, I'm probably too much of a, of a, of a financial psychology nerd, but I feel like I'm reading kind of the second um, book of the of a series. It's called the Almanac of Naval Reykjavik, the Guide to Wealth and Happiness. And uh, he's a, uh, a a tech investor, and uh, he kind of got into psychology, but he he's really kind of doubling down on uh, some of the similar conversations about um, that you know money won't make you happy, and uh, you know keeping fulfilled and and content in life really is uh, where you get happiness from. And uh, was is is an interesting read following this book up. Yeah, and I just want to give a plug to gratitude here. Like, you know, more we practice gratitude, the happier we are. I know that's not probably part of the book, but well, no, it, t- it talk actually the the Naval book definitely touches on that, and and that goes and, and both books really touch on that when when it comes to keeping up with the Joneses scenario, right? And uh, and being grateful when you you have. Um, good luck <laughs> and uh, also be grateful for other things when you're having bad luck. And uh, I think what's your point, gratitude and kind of keeping that ego in check really uh, hope, help financially and uh, emotionally. Yeah. So being more humble, like having that approach, grateful and humble. So we'll leave off on that. Um, keep reading everyone, keep learning, keep growing, keep forgiving yourself for those financial mistakes and learn from them. Have a great day. Day, and we'll see you next week on the Self-Improvement Podcast.